Good morning and happy St. Patrick's Day. Welcome to the broadcast. I'm Pastor Jeff Shreve, pastor at First Baptist Church in Texarkana, Texas, and the founder of From His Heart Ministries, a national and international radio and television ministry heard every weeknight at 6 p.m. Central Time on American Family Radio. Well, today we want to talk about making the most of your time. The scripture says in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 15, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. We have a special guest on the broadcast today, somebody that I greatly admire, and somebody that has made the most of his time. Now, I believe this guy is a five-talent guy. God has really, really blessed him with gifts and talents and abilities, but this guest has used those to the full. He has served as a pastor. He has served as a politician. He has run three times for president. He has served in government in Arkansas as lieutenant governor and governor. He's an author. He's a speaker. He's a TV talk show host and a radio host and an influencer in our culture for faith and family. And it is my privilege to welcome to the broadcast, Governor Mike Huckabee. Mike, welcome. Jeff, what a pleasure to be with you. When you were going through all that stuff, I'm thinking, sounds like an interesting guy. I wonder who he's got on today. I thought he was... Well, you are an interesting guy. And uh, Mike, I was doing a little research in your background from Hope, Arkansas, uh, a town in 2019 population was uh, 9,600 or something like that. When you were a kid growing up there, how many people lived there? About the same, maybe uh, 8,000 people, maybe up to 8,200. So it was always a small town, never a, a big city. And it's maintained somewhat of that same uh, demographic. Great place to grow up, though. I, I honestly look back and think it was like growing up in Mayberry. People didn't lock their doors. There was uh, a real sense of community. We used to say that uh, if you got in trouble 10 blocks from home before you could uh, pedal your bicycle to your house, uh, seven people had called your parents and those people had already given you a spanking before you got home to get one from your folks. So it was that kind of place where uh, it, it wasn't like it was people being busybodies, but people looked after each other. There was a sense of, of genuine community, and it was a great place to grow up. You know, I, I'll be honest with you, Jeff. I grew up uh, on the poor side of things, didn't have much, grew up in a little uh, shotgun orange brick rent house on second street. Um, but it was a great place to grow up. And even if a great place to be poor, because so many other people were too. And, you know, growing up that way, you, you learn how to work when you're really, really young. And you learn that if you don't work, you don't get stuff that you want because there's nobody going to hand it to you. It's not like there's a, a wish list and you hand it to your parents or your rich uncles and say, Hey, this is what I want. If you want BBs for your BB gun or baseballs uh, or whatever it is, you know, you're going to have to go find a way to earn the money to get it. And that's just the way it was. But I don't look back on that and say, oh, I was a victim. Gee, I was underprivileged. No, I was incredibly blessed and overwhelmingly privileged to grow up with parents who didn't coddle me and who didn't uh, indulge me in everything I wanted because, number one, they couldn't. And number two, I think that even if they could have, had they had the resources, 
I don't think they would have been stupid enough to say, yeah, let's let's make life so comfortable that he's going to grow up thinking that this is the way the world works. The truth is, Jeff, you and I both know it's not how it works. So, uh, you know, I, I was fortunate to grow up in a place like that with great people and nothing but gratitude to God for uh, even growing up in the economic condition I grew up in. That's a cool story. And, you know, Hope is so close to Texarkana. So uh, I've been there many times and passed through many more times. And uh, it's just neat to see uh, a kid from Hope that grew up in, uh, you know, not in a wealthy family, but that God has used in such a great way. So, uh, Mike, when Joseph was 17, God gave him a dream that his brothers were going to bow down. And he had that in his heart from from that time. Uh, did you have a dream like that when you were a kid growing up and hope that I just think God's going to do something great with my life? You know, I, I don't recall having a dream that I was uh, going to be served by my siblings. I only had one. That was a sister. She was two years <laughs> older. <laughs> but I, but I really did have dreams that uh, that I could do whatever I, I dreamed of doing. I mean, I, I was so fortunate that I had teachers that encouraged me. Um, one of the things that I did when I was very, very young, starting in second grade, was to read biographies. And I would check books out of the library, and there was a whole shelf in our second grade class of biographies of Abraham Lincoln and Thomas Edison and uh, so many great Americans. And when I would read those biographies, I would read that these were people who in many cases grew up uh, under as humble and sometimes far more so circumstances than me. And I thought, hey, if these people can make it, why can't I? And I was also uh, raised in a family where I don't think my parents ever believed I would do some of the things I've done. I've joked that when I was eight years old, my dad took me to uh, hear the governor of Arkansas uh, make a speech down at uh, what's called Bodark Lake. Doesn't look like that's the way you would pronounce it if, if you saw it spelled, but it was a brand new lake that the state of Arkansas had built down in southwest Arkansas. Governors never came down to that part of the state. We were so far from Little Rock that it just wasn't something people cared about. And so he told me, and I'll never forget it, he said, now, son, governor's going to come down here and make a talk and I'm going to take you out there to hear him because you may live your whole life and you may never see a governor in person. <laughs> and that's just the way my dad would have thought, not that I ever could have been one, <laughs> but maybe I'd get a chance to be 50 yards away and take a look at one while he's making a talk. So oh, wow. I look back with a sense of, wow, you know, things uh, got better than that. Uh, but yeah, I did have dreams, and I think they were fostered first by the exposure when I was very, very young to uh, biographies of great Americans and, and people that had done significant things. But ultimately, in my teenage years, as I really started understanding what it was to follow Christ, uh, this was the turning point for me. And that's when, uh, at age 15, the verse Philippians 4.13 just took hold of me in a very profound way. And when people ask me, what's your favorite verse? And, and they think I'm going to kind of, well, let me, no, I don't have to stumble around about it. It's Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that verse was life-changing for me because I, I really grew up 
uh, I, I think some of it was because I didn't have the nice clothes. My family didn't have new cars. We didn't have air conditioning. We didn't take vacations. We didn't, you know, enjoy all the brand new toys that other kids did. And maybe I just felt that I wasn't as good as a lot of those other kids that I grew up with. And they had nicer homes and nicer clothes and all that stuff. That verse was so transformative for me because it reminded me that nothing about the world I lived in was my limitation. I can do all things through Christ. And that's the key. It's not just that I can do all things. This isn't some kind of hepped up um, motivation message that we can just do it all on our own. And I don't believe that. I, I think that's a false thing. It's a false teaching. But we can do all things through Christ, which means we find his will, which he's more than willing to share with us. And getting in the middle of his will, he will see to it that we have the resources to succeed. Amen. That's a great word. Okay, so you, your parents were Christians, I'm assuming, and then they, they raised you in church? Well, my mother would take us. My dad was not a Christian. He did not become a believer until um, I was a teenager. In fact, it was my spiritual turning point that inspired him, I think. Um, he was a good man and a very moral man. But here's a sad story, Jeff. Uh, when he was a much younger man, he uh, went to church and some people made fun of him because he didn't have uh, a nice suit and he wasn't dressed right. And, you know, like sometimes church people can be, uh, they were rather cruel and just really uh, gave him a tough time about not being as dressed up as they thought he ought to be. He was wearing the best he had. Um, and it really hurt him. It just stung him deeply. And so it, it wasn't that he hated God. He didn't. But he just thought, you know, I, I don't want to go where I'm not wanted. So he just didn't uh, go to church. And it was just part of that whole thing. And it reminds me how important it is that when people do come to a church, you don't know what their background is. You may not know what hurts and feelings they're got welling up inside of them. Love them. Take them for who they are. Uh, don't try to say, you know, you really ought to um, park over here. You really don't want to sit in that pew because we have someone who kind of owns that one. Or next time you come, <laughs> why don't you dress up a little better? You know, it's sad to me that how insensitive sometimes people can be. But it kept my father out of church until he saw the change that Christ brought in me and then it, it was at a point it just didn't matter anymore to him. Mm. Now, you, how old were you, Mike, when you came to Christ? I came to Christ at age 11 in a vacation Bible school, but it was around the age of 15 when my life really began to change. And part of that was that the Jesus movement was uh, in full swing. And I, I was discouraged by church, sort of the same thing that my own father had experienced. But, uh, you know, from those years between age 11 and 15, as I grew into my teenage years, um, you know, I, I, I wondered was, was all there was to this is just get saved, go to church, go to heaven. It was like, that's the three-step plan. And there's nothing <clears throat> else, uh, you know, get saved, get baptized, then go to church every week. And then when you're die, when you die, you're going to go to heaven. But I'm thinking, is this just a Sunday deal? I mean, because I would see people and 
they certainly dressed up on Sunday and they acted like good people on Sunday, but I'd see them the rest of the week. And I, I couldn't really see that they were living like Christians if Christians are supposed to live a certain way. And also the culture of the church at that time in the late 60s was rather traditional and did not really speak to a generation that I was growing up in. And it was the Jesus movement, the music of the Jesus movement first, and then the power of Campus Crusade and materials that they began to develop that let me know that uh, walking with Christ is an every moment thing. It's not uh, just like a piece of clothing that you put on Sundays, you wear it to church, you come home, put it in your closet, and forget about it till the next Sunday. And that was the transformative thing. The likes of which one of the big moments in my life, um, I had really begun to uh, follow the Lord and really deepen in my faith because of uh, being in a small group that was led by some laymen in hope. Uh, they used Campus Crusade materials. And then Explo 72 happened in June 1972. And the reason this is so kind of fresh on my mind, this June marks the 50th anniversary of Explo. But oh, Explo wow. was really Woodstock for Christians. And <laughs> people who weren't around really can't even appreciate it. But it, it really was. There were uh, 100,000 young people from all over the world that gathered in Dallas to be trained in evangelism. And then on the final day, uh, in an outdoor service, Billy Graham speaking, uh, Johnny Cash was performing, and uh, Larry Norman, and Love Song, and many of the Christian contemporary artists that were really breaking new ground in music. 250,000 young believers from all over the world gathered in Dallas. And you got to understand, coming from a town of 8,000 people, um, I mean, there were more people oh, wow. in the restaurant at any given moment at Exploit <laughs> than lived in my own town. And I'm just blown away by the sheer size of it. But also, more than that, by the power of seeing people my age, that many of them, um, gathered because they loved Jesus and believed his word and wanted to follow him. And it was a, uh, a, a really a seminal moment, I think, in Christian history that sparked a lot of uh, organizations, ministries, uh, movements. And uh, like anything over time, you know, movements become institutions and institutions end up being boring. But there were hold on, hold on, Governor. We got to take a break. Don't go away. We're talking to Governor Mike Huckabee. Paul writes, when one part of the body suffers, we suffer together. This is Bible League International, and here's a very startling statistic. Every five minutes outside of America, a Christian is killed simply because they believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Let me give you some perspective. By the end of the average hour-long worship service in America on a Sunday, 12 Christians will die, again, simply because of their faith. Now listen, persecution is arguably the top issue facing the global church today. I'm not saying the death is affiliated with 
every case of persecution, but if I believe we know Christians who are singled out, targeted, monitored, threatened with death, even killed simply because of their faith. Listen, we can do something about it by sending exactly what they're praying for to persevere and endure, and that's God's Word at $5 a Bible, $100 since 20. Would you pray about it and then make your most generous gift by calling 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, or give at sendbiblesnow.org, sendbiblesnow.org, and God bless you for caring. This is the time where we all better be on our knees in front of our windows, where we better have the boldness to stand on the truth of God's word, where our allegiance better be to him. Listen, he alone has an enduring kingdom. He alone, he alone makes promises and keeps them. God alone, nobody else. Airing the Addisons, weekday afternoons at 2 Central on American Family Radio. Hi, this is Pastor Robert Morris. I'm often asked, how do I grow in my relationship with the Lord? How do I hear God? What is God's plan and purpose for me? I want to personally invite you to join me on Sunday mornings right here on AFR for worship and the Word. And we will discover the answer to these questions together. We'll explore the truths found in God's Word that will help you strengthen your faith and develop a more intimate relationship with Him. Athletics and life teach us common benefits. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Whether you're working on that golf game or improving your average on the baseball field, you can learn life lessons. But more importantly, you can learn spiritual lessons. 1 Corinthians 9.24 says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Jesus Christ gave His life on the cross just so that you can have a personal relationship with Him. Receive Jesus Christ now as your Lord and Savior and enjoy the ultimate prize of eternal life. Then you can do what Hebrews 12.1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. A message from American Family Radio. Welcome back to the broadcast. Pastor Jeff Shreve here. We're talking to Governor Mike Huckabee. Governor, I have a question for you. So... You were roughly 12 years as a pastor, and then from mm-hmm. there you went into politics. So uh, take us through that. How do you go from being a pastor to being in politics? Well, first you have to lose your mind. Uh, that's the <laughs> prerequisite to that. Um, you know, for me, it was as much a calling, I think, as anything I've ever experienced. Um, most people think that being pastor was my first real vocation. It wasn't. Uh, my first career was communications, radio, television, advertising. I ran an ad agency and I did radio and television work, mostly within the Christian marketplace. And I kind of backed into the pastorate, but it was clear that that was God's direction for me. And I look back and I realized that those years in a pastorate were the years where God really put me in, I call it his special graduate school to teach me uh, and and to expose me to the whole spectrum of human life. And, you know, when when I got into politics, Jeff, I'll never forget there were people who said, oh, I just think it's terrible. What business does a pastor have getting involved in public life and public service? 
And the attitude was that pastors really don't know that much, and pastors aren't that in tune. And I laugh at that as much now as I did then, and I say, there's no person in your community who knows more about every social pathology that exists in in our world today, like your pastor does, because he's the one who's on the front lines talking to the people who are hurting and who are celebrating. So whether it's uh, the young couple who are experiencing the birth of their first child or the young couple who's experiencing the death of their three-year-old, whether it's uh, the teenage girl who's 14 and finds out she's pregnant, hadn't told her parents yet, but she goes and tells her pastor, and she's scared and doesn't know what to do, um, all the way to uh, the 38-year-old mom of four who had an abortion when she was 15, and she's really never told anyone, and now she's overwhelmed by guilt and shame and is just doubled over with uh, a sense that God can't forgive her. And so what I've said is that in every aspect of of life, the pastor is the only person in the community who can put a name and a face on every social pathology. So that time in my life when I was a pastor uh, was an extraordinary, blessed time for me. And I learned more about life and people. And when people talk about poverty, guess who's the one who carries the sack of groceries? into the elderly couple's home whose cupboards are bare. It's the pastor. That's who. So you just go through all the things. And uh, so other people talk about human problems in the abstract. A pastor has seen them up close and personal. Hmm. Uh, that's that's very true. Um, the world of politics, uh, I, I know that you know, you were taking the, the hits when you were lieutenant governor and governor and running for president. But now Sarah's running for governor, your baby girl. Uh, yep. It's a it's a different beast when the ugliness starts coming toward her. How, how do you deal with that? I, I think that she's prepared, unlike most people who ever run for office, because she's genuinely grown up in it. I mean, it's all fresh to her and she's she's seen it all. She's experienced it all both through her parents and seeing what happened with us and then serving in her own capacity for all of her adult life. It's what she's done, running campaigns, working with candidates, working at the White House. So, I mean, as a parent, when I see people attack her, there's a side of me that says, let me at them. You know, that's just For sure. Yeah. But, you know, deep down, I think, hey, you know, she chose to do this. She knows who she is. My greatest comfort about her is that uh, she loves Jesus. She's a strong believer in his word, and she knows that her life is not going to be evaluated by her critics or people who write letters to the editor or get on social media and say hateful things. That's not who judges her. It's not who she answers to. So it, it gives me a sense to know that her own equilibrium is established by her being able to say, Lord, these people who have these things to say about me, that doesn't matter. But Lord, what do you say about me today? That matters. And so I don't, I don't uh, curl up in a fetal position under the kitchen table. Over it. I just don't. It's like, okay, take your best shot. Because 100 years from now, uh, I'm really not going to care what uh, some guy who uh, got on Facebook 
uh, who's probably never had more than 30 followers, what that person thinks. Yes. Well, Sarah is an exceptional person. Uh, when I, when she did her stuff for president Trump and, uh, as we know, President Trump ha- had a unique ability to to say things that would be <laughs> difficult to respond to. You know, uh, <laughs> as Rick Scarborough, so <laughs> Rick Scarborough told me, he said, uh, "We don't like what President Trump says, but we like what he does." And uh, I think that's a fair assessment because he did great things for the country. But um, you, you know, in in her position, that was a I, I joked with people. I said, I think that's got to be the hardest job in America was when she was huh. the spokesman for the president. Well, it was tough in so many ways, but she believed in what he was doing and she understood who he was, as did I. I told people, I said, you know, if you're expecting him to come out and quote scripture and talk about what he heard in church last Sunday, you're going to be really disappointed. Um to his face in front of 1,200 pastors in New York, I actually said, and again, Trump was three feet from me. I said, I'm not sure this guy could find John 3.16 in a Mark New Testament. So <laughs> let's, let's be pretty clear. He ain't one of us. But I said, he respects us and he, he listens. Does. And he also will faithfully defend the sanctity of human life and mm-hmm. the freedom of people who are faith-based to live their faith without the government coming in and telling them what limitations they can have on what they believe or when they can meet or how they can uh, worship and, and pray and praise God. He does do that, and I have great respect for uh, the things that he did in America and then the things that he did for the unborn. Um, and so uh, God used him in a great way. And uh, Mike, how would you respond to this question? We hear this a lot or this sentiment, you know, pastors should stay away from anything political, just stick to the Bible. You're getting too political pastor. You know, I've, I've been accused of that in my preaching. I always preach when election time rolls around, we're, we're going to talk, I don't use names, but we're going to talk about platforms and we're going to talk about what, you know, what this side believes, what that side believes. What would you say to those that say pastors should stay away from anything political in the pulpit? Well, only if pastors don't care that the government may, one day may come in and tell them what they can preach and what they can't and take their bank accounts from them, tax the uh, contributions to the church, shut down their camps because they're not making accommodations for biological males to shower with biological females at church camp or at Christian colleges are telling a pastor that he can't speak on the integrity of marriage of one man, one woman. If those things don't matter, and if it doesn't matter that marriage is a sacred institution, if it doesn't matter that life begins at conception, if it doesn't matter that a person ought to be free to pray to whom they wish, and to be able to know that uh, their children in a government school are not going to be subjected to uh, really just evil teaching that says that uh, because of their race, they're, they're, they're racist and they're inferior and that they, uh, they come from an ancestry of hate and bigotry and imperialism. Uh, you know, when I, I hear pastors say that, I just want to say, what world are you living in? You know, I'm not asking pastors to go to their pulpit and endorse candidates. Uh, even when I was a candidate, I would always say to pastors, don't endorse me 
from the pulpit, uh, because I can fail, and, and I very well may. Preach Jesus from your pulpit. He'll never fail. But if you preach his word, you're going to make applications of it, applications that apply to the current culture. And if you're not doing that, then you're wasting the people's time by simply giving them Bible stories as if they're six-year-olds. Uh, <laughs> make the gospel real. You know, yes. don't just put a flannel graph up there. And I know that most of your listeners are too young to even know what that means. But some of the older ones will remember you go to Sunday school and they put these little flannel graphs of, of uh paper picture of Jesus that would stick on the flannel, and they'd tell the Bible stories, and that was it. There was no application. So we learned, you know, what happened with Noah or Moses, but when it becomes important is when we apply it. My point is this. When pastors say, I don't want to be involved, my response to that, Jeff, is this. You're already involved. Uh, You're either involved in helping to stand for godly values or you're helping to uh, accommodate the evil that is uh, infiltrating the world. And if a pastor looks around his community and culture, and he can't see that the attacks on the church, the attacks on Christian integrity, the attacks on even worship, if he cannot see that as evil, then I really wonder, why is he a pastor? What is it he's doing? Is he the president of a club, Mm. or is he truly the pastor of, of a people. And I always believe that uh, churches grow when they want their pastor to be the captain of a warship rather than the captain of the love boat, just making sure everybody's <laughs> having a great time. Amen. I just got through preaching a series, uh, Soldiers of the Cross. And I said, you know, Paul told Timothy, suffer hardship as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. I said, listen, the moment you get saved, you're put in the Lord's army. And the question is Mm -hmm. not, are you a soldier, but are you a good soldier? And we need to stand up for Jesus. So I, Uh, amen, Mike, that is a a great word. Okay. So I got to ask you this. You and I are both on the steering council of the conservative Baptist network. And so I have two questions for you. Why are you on there? And what are your concerns with the current trend in the Southern Baptist convention? Well, I was uh, very involved back in the late seventies and early eighties when Southern Baptists were uh, kind of uh, deciding what it wanted to be when it grew up. And the big question was, were we going to be people who went the way of other major denominations and began to question the veracity, the inerrancy, and the infallibility of Scripture, and therefore we would start uh, making the Bible adapt to the current culture rather than demanding that current culture adapt to the Scripture? We want, we, I felt like we won that battle. We, uh, we dealt with it. Uh, you know, I was... Believe it or not, I was a young man back then, but I was also a person who deeply believed that there was only one um, reason to have uh, an ongoing Christian witness, and that is that you were based on the objectivity of the the truth or reliability of Scripture. Well, Southern Baptists got that settled, and we saw dramatic changes in our seminaries and in our churches and institutions and literature, and then, as often is the case— uh, people wanted to be popular again and wanted to be loved by the world and invited to the cool things. You know, it's sort of like when you're in grade school or even junior high, and there's a sort of a, a cool kids table in the cafeteria, right. and everybody really wants to sit there with all the cool kids. Right. But a lot of us never never got invited. 
and we hurt because we want to be there. And then we figure out, okay, if I do these three things, I can sit at the cool kids table. Right. Well, I think there's some folks in the denomination that started wanting to really be loved by the uh, influences of the world. And so they began to say, well, look, I know the Bible teaches this in Romans 1 about same-sex attraction, but uh, we can accommodate that. And let's not, let, let's not push anything because uh, it's really not that important. And the life issue, well, that, that might be something we ought to uh, take a stand on, but not one that's really all that uh, firm. Anyway, you, you go through and you realize there are some people, and I'm not saying they're bad people, but you, you wonder, is wokeism more of their goal than being awake in Christ? And mm. that's the concern that I have. I see this drift back toward um, we want the world to love us. And Jeff, my feeling is if we follow Jesus, if we really stand on the Word of God, the world isn't going to love us. They're no. just not. Some will respect us, but most of them will hate us because our very presence and message is a conviction point to those who are living in sin. That is so good. Yeah, the world's not going to love us. They, Jesus is love in the flesh, and they nailed him to a tree. Uh, so yeah. this idea, well, we just need to to love the world. If we love the world like Jesus, he said, hey, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Well, Mike, you are, uh, you are a guy that I love. And I appreciate uh, what you do. I appreciate your stand. I appreciate the way you communicate um, because you do it in love. You speak the truth in love. I remember something you said when you were running for president. I'm conservative, but I'm not angry about it. And uh, I thought that was that was well said. Um, just as we get ready to close out, uh, Sarah running for governor, what advice do you give her? Well, I tell everyone, Jeff, I'm a senior advisor to her campaign. And let me explain what that means. Uh, I'm a senior citizen now, and I'm babysitting her kids a lot, and I advise them when it's time for them to go to bed. So <laughs> that's my main role. But, you know, I do get to talk to her from time to time and give her background on certain things. But the biggest advice I give her, because she's got her own convictions and heart, and I, I'm comfortable with who she is, and I just tell her, be who you are. Be yourself. And don't let people influence you away from what you know is right. Stick with right. Sometimes it'll cost you poll numbers. Uh, it may even cost you an election. But you've got to be able to know that when you look up toward heaven, that you see the smile of the Father's face, even if you see the frowns and the jeers of the crowd. What a great word. We've been talking to Governor Mike Huckabee. Governor, I know you're a busy guy. You're getting ready to catch a flight. So God bless you. God bless your family. And I look forward to uh, seeing you soon. Don't go away. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. What does the American Family Association stand for? AFA aims to evangelize the lost and disciple the believer. AFA aims to strengthen biblical marriages and equip parents to raise godly children. These values and more are part of our mission to inform, equip, and activate individuals to strengthen the moral foundations of our culture. We also support the church. We want to be a leading organization in biblical worldview training for cultural transformation 
Thank you for standing with us. In His Image, delighting in God's plan for gender and sexuality. I loved it. I loved how biblically sound it was, all the scripture to back it up. The testimonies were very powerful. If it's a prodigal child that has just run away or one that's caught up in same-sex attraction, there's hope in Jesus. In His Image is now available on DVD and can be purchased in bulk to pass out to friends and family. Order today by visiting afastore.net. Hi, I'm Will. And I'm Miki. And we've been married 16 years. You know, one of the things that Miki asked me before we got married, she's like, why do you want to marry me? What is it about, about me? Really, the Lord had put on my heart that God was putting us together for destiny and for purpose, and that he had a ministry that he desired to do through us, that, you know, we were both ministering on our own, but together that God was going to you know, use us to minister. There is no one who is closer to you than your spouse, and there is no one who knows you better, and this is by God's design. Marriage is the first institution that God has given us to to shape us and to mold us and to show us ourselves. It's a beautiful picture. Tune in to By Design as we explore God's true purpose and design for marriage. Just visit the podcast page at AFR.net. We've always had an interest. God has given us a gift of being able to help a lot of people with their finances and budgets and stuff. AFA supporters Bernie and Alice Larson met Dan Celia at a Faith, Family, and Finance town hall meeting. And he answered some questions, and we were thinking about the charitable gift annuities, and we'd never heard of that before, but we thought, well, we'd always wanted to leave some of our money with for God, but we didn't know where or how. And it, we felt like this was put into our laps as answer to our prayers as to what we could do after we're gone. Bernie and Alice learned a charitable gift annuity from the AFA Foundation would provide them with a monthly income for life as well as supporting the American Family Association into the future. You can learn more about charitable gift annuities and other financial products at afafoundation.net or call 800-326-4543, extension 345. And uh, you just can't outgive God. Welcome back to the broadcast. Pastor Jeff Shreve here. We have been talking to Governor Mike Huckabee, and he had to uh, go to the airport and catch a plane. So uh, we appreciate him so much and uh, and the wisdom God has given him. And, you know, when I think about Mike, just as we started the broadcast, he's a guy that has made the most of what the Lord has given him. He's made the most of the opportunity that God has given him. Uh, the scripture says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Every believer has been given a spiritual gift, and God wants us to use it, to employ it, to serve others, to spread the good news of Jesus Christ, to make a difference in our world, but an eternal difference in our world. Uh, my admiration for Mike Huckabee just grows. Uh, I enjoyed so much talking to him today and just hearing how, how he started from humble beginnings to a man that God has used to make such a difference in, uh, in our world for Christ, such a difference in America. And so 
you may not have the gifts, talents, abilities, opportunities that he does. I may not have that, but hey, whatever we have, let's use it to the full. If all for the glory of God. Well, I'd love to take your call in this segment. The number to call is 1-888-589-8840. 1-888-589-8840. Today is St. Patrick's Day. And uh, if you look that up on Wikipedia, as I did, it's a day that commemorates the arrival of Christianity to Ireland. Now, a question to ponder for all of us, when did Christianity arrive for you? When did Jesus become real for you? You know, the day of our salvation it may not be the day that we walked an aisle or the day that we repeated a prayer. Um, Adrian Rogers used to say, you're not saved by the plan of salvation. You're saved by the man of salvation. And uh, Christianity is not a creed. It's not a code. It's not a cause. It's not a church. It is Christ. When did Christ become real in your life? For me, I was a high school senior, 17 years old, and uh, I realized that I was a sinner and I was lost and I desperately needed Jesus. Uh, my whole life growing up as a kid, I always wanted to go to heaven, but I never knew how to get there. I was like so many thinking, well, if you're a good person, if you don't rob banks and kill people, maybe, um, you know, don't commit the, the grosser sins that, that you'll be good enough, hopefully, to get into heaven. And uh, that's not how it works at all. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. And whether you rob a bank or whether you steal a piece of gum from the uh, convenience store, uh, you're a sinner. We're a sinner. If, if you keep the whole law and stumble in one point, James says, you're guilty of all. If you're hanging off the Empire State Building on a chain of 10 links and one link is made of crepe paper, you can't say, well, the, the nine other links are good, so I should be good. No, the one link that's crepe paper is going to cause you to fall and the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. You know, it's really good as a Christian if we think, okay, St. Patrick's Day, it's a day to commemorate the arrival of Christianity to Ireland. Every day for a Christian needs to be a day where we remember our salvation. We remember where the Lord, uh, where he met us, how he has brought us through. I remember uh, years ago, I heard a story about a pastor and he kept a little dump truck on his pulpit. And people said to him, why do you have this toy dump truck on your pulpit? He said, because when I met Christ, I was working on a dump truck. And that's when Jesus changed my life, came into my life. And I keep that there to remember and to commemorate where he brought me from, where I was when Jesus saved me and changed my life. It's kind of like the story of the woman at the well. Uh, she never forgot meeting Jesus at the well that day, John chapter 4, and uh, changed her whole life. And incidentally, if you've never seen uh, any of the chosen, the snippet they do of Jesus with the woman at the well is excellent. 
It fills in gaps. You know, the Bible doesn't give us all the details about encounters Jesus had with people. And so uh, Dallas Jenkins is, does a good job in that, in that vignette, especially filling in the gaps and what Jesus said to that woman at the well and how he loved her and how he treated her uh, is just, uh, just so awesome and so encouraging because that's the love the Lord has for you and me. So I want to encourage you, when did Jesus Christ arrive in your heart? Has he arrived in your heart? Because you might be listening and you've never given your life to Christ. You, you know about him in your head, but you don't really know him in your heart. And Christianity is all about heart. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God loves you with all his heart and he wants you and me to love him back. And it begins in the heart. The Pharisees and the religious leaders, they knew so much about God in their head, but they didn't have a personal relationship with the Lord in their heart. It was just all going through the motions. And that is religion in a nutshell. It's just going through the motions. It's just, as Jesus said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. And in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. The scripture says, give me your heart, my son, and let your eyes delight in my ways. Uh, when I was a college student, I was introduced to Adrian Rogers, and he became my favorite preacher. And I listened to hundreds of hours of his sermons. I still remember him saying one time, he says, what do you have that God wants? The God of the universe who owns a cattle on a thousand hills, which is just a poetic say, way of saying he owns everything. What could you possibly give God that he doesn't have? You know, people are always saying, well, uh, you know, I go to church and all they do is ask for money. It's like, you know, God is month to month. And if I don't put in my uh, $100, $500, $1,000, whatever it is that, you know, God's going to go broke. God doesn't need your money. What God wants from you and from me is our heart. That's the one thing that God doesn't have, perhaps, that he wants. My son, give me your heart. And when we give the Lord our hearts, I'm 17-year-old high school senior alone in my bedroom. I asked the Lord to save me. I gave him my heart. And when I gave my heart to Jesus and my life to Jesus, he gave his heart and life to me. See, becoming a Christian is the great exchange. You give yourself completely to the Lord and he gives himself to you. You give all you know of you to all you know of him. I remember talking to my dad before he had major surgery. I was talking to him about having a personal relationship with Jesus. And um, it, he was getting ready to have a nine-hour major surgery. Am I going to live or die? It was unknown. And so uh, I, I was asking him about his soul. And uh he said to me, he said, well, what does that mean when you talk about uh, receiving Jesus? And I said, Dad, this is what it means. It means you give all you know of you to all you know of him. 
And I said, when you give all you know of you to all you know of him, then the Lord becomes real in your heart. Now, I know a whole lot more today at 59 about me and about Jesus than I did at 17. But at 17, I didn't hold anything back. I gave all I knew of me to all I knew of Jesus. And the wonderful thing when I prayed sincerely from my heart, Jesus, will you save me? He did, because he will always answer that prayer. He'll do a deep work of salvation, redemption, forgiveness, and change in your heart, just like he did in my heart, and he comes to live inside. See, that's the thing about Christianity. Christianity as opposed to religion. Religion is an outside job. You clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, Jesus said to the Pharisees, but inside it's dirty. There's no way for a person in and of himself, herself, to clean the inside. Only the Lord can do that. And when you give your heart to Jesus, he comes in and he cleans you from the inside. He does a work on the inside. He comes to live inside of you. It's not a grit your teeth, kind of gut it out. Uh, maybe I can be, you know, be good enough to, uh, to merit God's approval or to merit God's forgiveness. You're never going to be able to do that. No one can do that. But you can confess, Lord, I'm a sinner and I'm lost and I can't save myself. And Jesus, I want you to come into my life and to save me and to change me and to live inside of me and to make me the person you want me to be. Guide me. I choose to follow you all the days that I have remaining on this earth. When you make that kind of a commitment to the Lord, he comes in and you know what? Your life can never stay the same. Uh, we used to sing a song in church, I will never be the same again. You can't be the same once you receive Christ as Savior and Lord. You can't be the same when the Holy Spirit of God comes to take up residence in you. Here's why. Because when the Lord comes to live in your life by the person of the Holy Spirit, he didn't come to take your side. He didn't come to live in a corner, a little uh, tucked away corner or closet in, in your life. He came to take over. He came to, he, he, think about it like your, your heart is like a house. When the Lord comes to live inside, he takes the master bedroom because he's the master and he changes everything. How do, how do you know that you've truly been saved? Because your life has changed. The acid test for Christianity is, has your life been changed? I tell people this all the time. If there's no change, there is no Christ. Well, we have Catherine on the line from Texas. Catherine, welcome to the broadcast today. Catherine, are you there? Can you hear me? Yes, I can now. Go ahead. Okay. I think I was, I felt like I was always close to Jesus and we talked all the time. And I, I mean, from a young child and even when I was uh, dating, he saved me from rape one time and I, I always felt close to him. However, one, I, I was already married. I was probably about 22. And one night I was alone. My husband was gone. And he came to me and it was 
it was with the revelation. And I remember that was so compelling that right then and there, that's when I said, okay, I'm yours. I'm yours. And it was, it's been, it's been wonderful. And, and I guess the last 32 years, it's been even better because I started teaching Sunday school in 1982 and that made me, that, I really dug in the Bible now just so I could teach the children, but now I dig in it because it speaks to me. And I, I love it when, when there's something I'll read and I'll go, Oh, I don't remember that. Or <laughs> what? Yes. How many times yeah. have I read this, this scripture and it, and now all of a sudden it's, it's so open to me. Just, yes. I, that, I know, that's I, a wonderful, it's, it's an entirely different thing. And I think one more thing. And I think, it's so important for us to bring us to bring our children to church, especially nowadays and especially Sunday school, because we need them to be able to when they leave us to go to college, that they'll be able to stand on their on their their knowledge of Jesus Christ and they will be able to be his champion and defender and stand strong and courageous for Jesus. Because if they don't know enough about Jesus, then how are they going to protect themselves and their family or whatever. And I remember I had the second and third grade one time and I said, all right, if, do you know, what if there's a time when the Bibles are all gone, there'll be no Bibles to be able to found. And, and your children say, uh, I heard something about, about a man named about Jesus and how he, he walked on what is that true dad? Well, if you don't know the Bible and the scripture, how are you going to stand up? And tell him if you don't know it, if you do not listen, if you do not go to Sunday school. Mm-hmm. It's so important. That's a great word, Catherine. Um, it is so important to have the word tucked down in your heart and to take advantage of the opportunity that God has given us here in America to uh, buy the Bible, study the Bible, read the Bible, go to church, learn, grow, because there are people in other parts of the world that they don't have a Bible. And they're not allowed a Bible. They're, they're incarcerated for their faith, not given a Bible. And so you have to tuck the word in your heart. And I love what you said about how sometimes you can read something, you've read it maybe a hundred times before, but it just pops off the page. And God is saying, that's a fresh word from my word for you today. Well, thanks so much for being with us. And uh, we want you to shine for Christ and share what great things the Lord has done for you. And we will be with you again tomorrow. God bless you. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.